daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for sustained efforts to tackle desertification. The World Bank lifts world economic outlook, raising China's 2023 forecast to 5.6 percent. China has expressed concerns about the damage to the Kokhovka Dam. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for sustained efforts to create new miracles in tackling desertification. Xi Jinping made the remarks during an inspection tour from Monday to Tuesday in the city of Bayanur in North China's Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region. On Tuesday afternoon, Xi Jinping presided over a symposium in Bayanur on strengthening the comprehensive prevention and control of desertification and promoting the construction of crucial ecological projects. He also said more should be done to promote international communication and cooperation, such as participating in global efforts of controlling desertification, supporting sand control in Belt and Road countries, among others. Now, for more, we're joined by Ma Jun. He is director of the Institute of Public and Environment Affairs, a Beijing-based NGO. Thank you, Ma Jun, for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Now, first up,、um, uh, what does an inspection in Inner Mongolia tell us about, you know, the importance of the place in China's national endeavor of ecological conservation? Yeah, this. Um, this inspection have again highlighted the uh, importance uh, to combat、uh, desertification. You know, China uh, is uh, among the uh, many countries in the world、uh, that suffers from、uh, desertification, uh, which um, and 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 China used to、uh, be the hardest hit、um, and when. You know all this、uh, in the particularly in the northern part of China,、uh, the desert uh,、um, actually uh, expanded uh, every year, and uh,、um, and and sandstorms uh, uh, happened in a, with a great frequency and、uh, and and great severity,、uh, particularly last um, uh, uh, in the、uh, 1960s and 70s,、mm. and and then China. Uh, took the、uh, took the real endeavor to try to、uh, build a、uh, three north uh, uh, shelter uh,、mm. shelter belt forest、mm. and um, uh, and with a, what with a what is、success. a three north、um, belt that you just mentioned? Yeah, three uh, three north uh, uh, means north China, northwest China, and northeast China. Right, these, these、mm. are the regions that.、Uh, Uh, most of the desert or、uh, desertified land、uh, are located in China、uh, mm. to prevent the further expansion and to uh, uh, try to uh, control uh, the, all those uh, desertification. Uh, China have decided to to uh, uh, plant trees and,、um, uh, and and stop hillside farming and.、Mm. And even took all these measures to try to the, try to do that.、Mm, yeah. Then,、uh, what about the place,、uh, special places like Bayanur and Inner Mongolia? Why do they matter in this effort? Yeah, Inner Mongolia、uh, has, is a is a region with、uh, uh, you know which is relatively、uh, dry. You know, located in northern China、mm. and、uh, and relatively uh, with uh, with lower.、Uh, Uh, precipitation and、uh, the course of that uh, uh, has uh, uh, has has some of the China's uh, largest uh, deserts and uh, uh, degraded uh, desertified land uh,、mm-hmm. uh, in this region. Uh, and uh, uh, in Mongolia, this also uh, uh, has、um, uh, neighboring, you know.、Uh, Has a long border with、mm-hmm. uh, the Mongolian Republic, uh, which、mm-hmm. is uh, has, uh, is also a major source of、uh, of sandstorm that impact impact China、uh, in recent years.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, Bayanur 
uh, is also quite special. Uh, the uh, Yellow River, uh, Yellow River uh, uh, flows past uh, this region mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and 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 created uh, a green belt in this in this region, and mm. also in this region have uh, uh, created uh, uh, some uh, a uh, some wonderful uh, water resources. Mm. Uh, like the Wuliangsu Lake, uh, right. uh, but this region uh, used to suffer from uh, not just desertification, but also the uh, overdrafting of water and uh, and also uh, water pollution due to uh, due to farming and uh, and the industrial practice. Mm. Uh, so in recent years, uh, uh, major efforts have also been made to try to restore uh, the water quality of. Uh, the Wuliangsu River, and also uh, trying to uh, make more efficient use of uh, the uh, uh, highly valuable water resources uh, mm. of, uh, of of the Yellow. So, uh, so these right. are the you know where there are lessons, but there are also some best practices developed mm. in this region. Well, on that, um, we you you have earlier talk mentioned you know the three North project, which is North China, Northeast China, as well as Northwest China. China has done a lot in you know in tackling desertification in these areas. Tell us about you know the achievements that China has made. Yes, China has attained tremendous uh, achievements uh, in in this uh, uh, efforts to counter uh, desertification uh, over the past uh, four decades uh, mm-hmm. uh, through through such a, a, a program. But not just this program, uh, also the Green for Green program, and also uh, other programs. Uh, but um, uh, uh, with with all these efforts, uh, the uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the desert in China used to uh, expand every year. Sometimes, uh, for uh, the, the, the desert will will uh, will take over uh, more than 1,000 square kilometers mm. a year. Uh, you know, uh, uh, in uh, several decades ago. But uh, but through all these efforts, uh, uh, that trend has been stopped, mm. and uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, land that uh, 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 that used to suffer from severe desertification, say like uh, in uh, Haochin and uh, in Huangshandake mm. and uh, Maosu as well, uh, right. which uh, um, uh, we have seen, you know, through all this, uh, 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 we have seen green, you know, all these trees and uh, shrubs and uh, uh, grass have been restored in this mm. region and. Mm. Uh, and, and and that make China, you know, uh, and, and that make make China the uh, the biggest contributor to the expansion of green uh, right. in uh, in in the in the world. And to what we can expect, you know, our experience in Beijing and, mm. and that um, the frequency of uh, sandstorms have been hugely reduced since the right. uh, 1960s and uh, and 70s. Mm, that is indeed uh, great news and great contribution. Now, in Bayanur, President Xi Jinping said uh, the years of uh, 2021 until 2030 is a crucial period for tackling desertification in China's, you know, the three north, northeast, northwest, and north. Um, help us uh, us understand why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is um, you know the the, the three north. Uh, uh, Shout about forest program mm. is a pro- is really a very long term program. Sustained efforts must be made uh, to achieve that. Uh, it started from 1978. For, uh, according to the plan, uh, it, uh, the, the the project will uh, will, will be carried on uh, by uh, to 19 uh, to 2050. Oh. Uh, so uh, so we are uh, we're in the sixth. And the so-called sixth phase of this three north program, mm-hmm. and um, uh, all the uh, you know, with all the efforts made, with all the achievements uh, uh, we have attained, uh, there are also challenges. Uh, uh, for example, the uh, the trees, you know, uh, in those early days when we plant the trees, we uh, haven't really, uh, you know, it's uh, we plant single 
uh, type of trees and uh, mm. the, the monoculture make it uh, more susceptible to to pesticides and uh, degrade. So that the trees, many of uh, much of the trees got degraded uh, because of that. Right. And uh, so we need to do more. And uh, in um, uh, and and uh, uh, mm. and. And in recent uh, in recent years, uh, the uh, with all these uh, uh, great efforts uh, uh, made to expand the grain, uh, uh, we're also uh, mm. facing new challenges, such as the uh, you know climate change have right. created uh, mm. uh, new uncertainties. Uh, so, Francis also mentioned in recent years we have seen a higher frequency of sandstorms mm-hmm. due to that. So, how do we you know? Uh, tackle this uh, this new situation to try mm-hmm. to adapt adapt to the uh, to the changing climate mm-hmm. and how do we collaborate uh, with the surrounding regions uh, neighboring right. countries I mean that, that, all those are the new challenges. Mm, indeed, it sounds like you know this project uh, will need the efforts of generations to come. Um, so, uh, also, Majin, how widespread in reality is the problem of desertification around the world? Is it a problem only unique to China or not? No, not at all. This mm. uh, this uh, this this is an issue that uh, uh, that many other countries and regions uh, uh, are facing, and. Uh, uh, among the hardest hit regions uh, 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 in Asia, it's, uh, uh, it's Mongolia uh, Republic, and mm-hmm. then the uh, northern part of China, and then Central Asia. Uh, there are large uh, uh, area of uh, desertification uh, in those regions, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and then of course Middle East and uh, um, and, and and Africa. Uh, Right. Uh, there are they have the the worst largest uh, mm. uh, deserts there, and so, the changing climate mm. also hits harder in some regions like Africa. Mm. So I guess that's why President Xi Jinping emphasized the importance of international communication and collaboration in this area. So how does international collaboration take place usually? Yeah, so mm. far um, the the words have come together. Uh, to recognize the importance to address this issue, so mm. uh, this uh, this convention to to combat desertification has been signed by large number of countries in the world, and of course China's major signature uh, country, uh, and, um, and and China uh, will uh, have decided to honor its commitment by uh, you know before by uh, supporting. Uh, providing some support for mm-hmm. other countries to tackle their uh, uh, the desertification. Uh, right. Uh, but in more recent years, I think uh, the other countries uh, not just want financial resources; they also want to learn about the uh, experience. Mm-hmm. You know, the best practice uh, developed in China. For example, the uh, Mongolian Republic have uh, have launched their plan to 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 plant one billion. Mm. Uh, trees and uh, China have uh, have very Indeed. rich experience mm. in in uh, you know what kind of trees and how to oh. plant mm. how to plant them and uh, right. plant. Yeah. Mm. Indeed, um, talking to each other is really the starting point of uh, you know learning with each other together. Thank you, Ma Jun. That was Ma Jun, director of the Institute of Public and Environment Affairs, a Beijing-based NGO. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The World Bank has lifted its forecast for global growth in 2023, citing better-than-expected resilience in major economies such as China and the United States. 
However, it warns that higher interest rates and tighter credit would significantly affect next year's performance. According to the report, the World Bank expects the global economy to climb 2.1 percent this year, up 0.4 percent from a forecast in early January. It predicted that China's economy would grow 5.6 percent this year, an increase from the earlier forecast of 5.1 percent. Now, for more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Chen Jiahe, chief investment officer at Nov Arcade Technology. So Jiahe, the World Bank lifts China's growth forecast for this year to 5.6 percent, and this is an increase from the earlier forecast of 5.1 percent. So, what do you think are some of the main reasons of it? Well, actually, I personally made the forecast. Probably we can reach somewhere between 5.8 percent to 6 percent、uh, this year. So when I see the 5.1 percent in the initial place, I thought, well, probably that's too low a data. So now they're、uh, picking it up to 5.6 percent. But anyway,、uh, this is actually because you know,、uh, if you look at the long term, the China's、uh, long-term economic growth. Uh, rate would be somewhere between five to six percent. So、uh, that's something we call potential economic growth rate. That means、uh, everything stays flat. Then you probably see somewhere between five point five percent for a long term.、Uh, and this year we are expected to see a higher data. And even when we see、um, at this moment the property sector is still、uh, re- remaining quite flat, but the economic growth is picking upward. Mm-hmm. And the bank's latest forecasts align with the growing expectations of a robust recovery in the Chinese economy this year. So, what sectors can drive the economic recovery of China? Well,、uh, when we look at the economic sectors this year, the property sector is probably the largest concern of the market right now.、Um, actually, if you look at the property investment sell、uh, in the first five months of this year, it's not very good, and that's part of the reason why we see the GDP growth rate is not going to somewhere between six or seven percent, but remaining at somewhere between five to six percent. But I don't personally think the property sector can be a large driver of the economy in the next few years. Uh, mainly because you know,、uh, if you look at the first tier cities, the property prices are just、uh, too expensive. We need a few years to take this down、uh, smoothly. You know,、uh, so maybe say five years later, the per capita income will be thirty、uh, to forty percent higher than now, and the property price、uh, stays the same. And that means the property bubble is coming down a bit. So this is about the property sector. And if you look at the whole economy this year, I, I think that's mainly、uh, we're putting expectation to the consumption economy. And basically, that's because the export is partly determined by the global situation, but the consumption,、uh, especially the domestic consumption, is only determined by the Chinese economy itself. So, if you look at many sectors of、uh, consumption economy、uh, in China this year, it has been picking up pretty good.、Mm. And we are seeing the latest figure shows that the Caixin Services PMI rose to fifty-seven point one in May. So, what does that tell us? That, that's a very astonishing data. I mean, people never expected that. We thought probably the PMI goes to 51 or 52, you know, slightly above the 50 threshold.、Uh, 50 really means everyone is flat about the future,、uh, and、uh, you know, 51, 52 means we are slightly、um, positive about the future. But 57.1 is、mm. really, really very high, you know.、Mm-hmm. So that really shows us that probably the economic growth、uh, potential is higher than what we have been expecting because what we are Having in front of us right now, the economic data is a data fulfilled with two large parts. One part is, as I said, the property market is not picking upward. The other part is all the consumption, industrial growth. These kind of things are picking up. But when you look at PMI, that's mainly concerned with the second part. So that probably tells us if the property sector is not as flat as it is right now, we probably see an economic growth that is much higher. And what do you think about、uh, China's export resilience for the rest of this year? That's、uh, well, China's export. That's very important for the economic growth. You know, especially when we have seen that in the past five、uh, to eight years, there has been a lot of trade tension between China and the U.S., and that worried uh, investors uh, and businessmen. But now it looks like China is having a pretty resilient、um, export right now, and that's because China has developed a much more export and import relation with developing nations like ASEAN countries, Africa. 
African nations, um, Russia, these kind of countries. So we have seen that China's export is picking up even as we are having this um, you know, trade dispute with the United States. So that's what's going on. You know, the, the trade dispute is not a good thing, but it's not hurting China's export uh, from the very root of it. Mm-hmm. And looking at the global economy, the World Bank also raised its global growth outlook to 2.1% this year. And its chief economist put a gloomy spin on the new forecast, saying that uh, the year 2023 will still mark one of the slowest growth years for advanced economies in the last five decades. So how do you look at the global economy this year? Is the high inflation still the number one concern? Or what about uh, other things like uh, the higher interest rates and uh, tighter credit conditions. Well, if, if we look at the global economy, that's a very mixed picture because you have uh, so many nations joining in, you know, pe- uh, countries that are really uh, fighting against each other. And these actions cause uh, many uh, consequences. And these consequences brought up some more actions. Uh, for example, you know, the trade dispute between China and U.S. has been a problem. Uh, but the trade dispute also has caused the uh, the price in the United States to rise up because, you know, in, in for a long period of time, U.S. has been importing so many chips stuff from China and trade disputes stop that importing. So there has been a lot of uh, you know inflation as we have seen in the past one year. So all these things brought upward. Another large concern has been the war in Ukraine. You know that's causing a large problem. But it's it's not really uh, the hurting of Russian economy, Ukraine economy that is a big concern to the global economy because if if you look at the size of these two economies, they're not very large. But what's going on? Uh, the problem is that this war has reduced the investors confidence in the whole Europe. And Europe is a large economy. It has got, you know, 400 million people. So it's, it's, it's a very large economy that has been brought down. You know, people doesn't really dare to invest. It's worrying that will, will there be a cut of gas anymore? Will there be a surge of energy price? So many uncertainties face investors over there because of this war. So you have seen all these things. Also, the central bank interest rate is a problem. Uh, well, currently, if you look at the global benchmark interest rate set by Fed, uh, European Central Bank, it, it's actually pretty high. So it's actually hurting the economy, but can they reduce the interest rate when inflation is not is is still in its place? So there are really some problems we can see. Mm, and will the U.S. and Europe banking sector stress still be dragging on for a while? And how will that affect the global financial sector? Well, if, if you look at uh, the, the banking sector uh, and to a large extent, the whole financial sector of the U.S. and Europe, uh, they have actually brought some surprise to us because we never expected them to have uh, much problem before the Silicon Valley Bank. Um, if you remember that uh, back only uh, a few months ago, before the SVB has gone into problem, no one expected there would be a financial crisis this year. It's not like 2008. Um, that in 2007, many people said, OK, there will be a huge problem because there has been so much uh, derivatives. But now this SVB problem and later on brought down so many uh, small banks and credit suites, all these banks um, has actually been uh, well, partly unexpected by people. But if you compare this extent with what has happened back in 2008, then this this time, I mean, 15 years later, we're having another crisis. Can you believe that? But um, this crisis is actually much smaller compared with 2008. The large financial institutions are actually not affected. So it looks like central banks and governments have got these problems under control, but it's hurting a bit anyway. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. growth for this year is now forecast at 1.1%. So will the U.S. Inflation calm down as quickly as uh, some people would want, or will more tightening still be needed? Do you think? Well, currently it looks like well, inflation in the United States is actually under control. You know, the Fed has stopped raising its interest rate. The inflation is gradually coming down. And the uh, one very important thing is that the expectation of inflation among customers is actually reducing. So people are not worrying that okay, there will be you know. Sometimes when people are worrying there will be more inflation to come, this worrying itself will bring inflation because people say, okay, we're going to consume more right now because prices will rise further in the future. Uh, And in that case, people will buy much more things and this purchasing will push the price up itself. So it looks like the inflation in the United States is right now under control. And um, uh, if the Fed holds the interest um, at the current status, it looks like the inflation rate will come back to 3%. 
within probably a few months or one year. It looks like it's coming downward. But I think one thing very important that is that the trade relationship between China and U.S. shall be good. You know, um, that affects the、uh, importing price of United States as well. That was Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Nov Arcade Technologies. This is World Today. We'll be right back. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China has expressed concerns about the damage of the Kakhovka Dam. A foreign ministry spokesperson says China is worried about its humanitarian, economic, and ecological impacts. China called on all stakeholders in the Ukraine conflict to abide by international humanitarian law and protect civilians and civilian infrastructure. The spokesperson also reiterated China's hope that all sides to come up with a political settlement for the crisis. Russia and Ukraine are blaming each other for the destruction of the dam in the Kherson region, which has caused a flooding over some villages and forced thousands to leave their homes. Yulu Abdafid reports. The Dnipro River is flowing faster after the explosions. Currently, it's an uneasy border for anyone living near the Russian-occupied territory east of the river and Ukrainian control to the west. After a blast at the Kakhovka Dam. The water flow in Dnipro River and its tributaries is very powerful. The water level rose by one meter. We'll see what happens next, but we hope for the best. Ukraine's military leaders accuse Russia of blowing up the dam, but Russian officials say it was partly breached because of Ukrainian shelling. In Kiev, it's serious enough to prompt an emergency national security and defense council meeting. Russia blew up a major dam located in Novokhovka. Causing significant civilian evacuations, harsh ecological damages, and threatening the safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Water levels are rising, and people are being evacuated from some villages in the region. Upstream, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant could be affected. The International Atomic Energy Agency says it's monitoring any potential impact at the nuclear reactors. Internationally, Western diplomats blame Russia. Kremlin-appointed officials locally argue the opposite. All of this is a result of continuous strikes on the Kharkovka hydroelectric power station. The Ukrainian forces have been carrying out these strikes for a long time. It's obvious repairs are impossible. I think we'll have to rebuild this power station from the start, just like in the 1950s. An estimated 80 villages could be affected, and Russian officials who control the town of Novokhovka confirm that a part of it is flooded. It's unclear yet how, if at all, this impedes Ukraine's military counteroffensive in the south and the east of the country. Now, for more, we're joined by David Martin Jones. He is visiting professor at War Studies Department, King's College, London. Thank you, Professor Jones, to talk for talking to us. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Now,、uh, Professor, first up,、uh, help us understand the、uh, Kakhovka hydroelectric power plant. Why is it important in terms of civilian use? Well, basically, it's a hydroelectric、uh, plant built in the 1950s、mm. to generate、um, hydro hydroelectric power. So it, it serves the、um, you know the power infrastructure needs of、um, a, a wide part of Ukraine. Mm. Well, the IAEA Director General、uh, has excluded uh, excluded、um, excuse me immediate risks to the safety of the Zaporizhia、um, nuclear power plant after the damage of the、uh, hydroelectric power plant. I mean, how is that the this hydroelectric、um, power plant related to the nuclear power plant? Okay, so the、uh, mm. the 
the, the reservoir and the mm. hydroelectric power plant uh, provide water upstream to, to cool the reactor at Zavaritsa. Mm. So there's um, uh, water from the hydroelectric plant and, and, and the, the, the reservoir that provides the, the coolant to keep the, the nuclear power plant from overheating. Now, the, the way in which the, um, the dam has been blown means that the, the waters to Zaporizhzhia are, are falling. So mm. that the, the, the lake that sort of uh, provides the coolant for the uh, nuclear power plant might itself become uh, destabilized. And then, um, you know, without the coolant, the, the, the nuclear um, power, power rods would heat up, potentially, you know, causing an explosion. Mm. Well, that is indeed very worrisome. Now, uh, Professor, how do you think authorities should help people, as we heard from our reporters earlier, who have been evacuated from, you know, near the hydroelectric power plant? Well, I mean, the, the, the problem is that not only does the, the reservoir pro provide power mm. and support the Zaporizhzhia uh, nuclear power plant, which also supplies power, but the, uh, the reservoir also provides the basis of clean drinking water. Indeed. So um, part of the problem now is that hundreds of thousands of people are potentially without clean water supplies. So... Um, as your correspondent said, you know, this is a, a, a mounting uh, humanitarian disaster, really. And, um, uh, you know, obviously aid would be uh, very important, but mm -hmm. given that there's a war going on as well, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's not looking um, very good for anybody on, on either side of the conflict, but particularly for the Ukrainians. Mm. Now, um, Professor, you must have been uh, observing, you know, how things are moving on the ground uh, right now in terms of the war in Ukraine. So in general, can you give us your evaluation? Well, I, I mean, it's obvious that, um, you know, we've been talking for a while about uh, a forthcoming um, Ukrainian offensive. And it would seem that, that that had begun, you know, given that they have the uh, heavy armaments that can move um, in, 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 the, in, in the summer season where the land is, is dry and uh, available to tanks. Um, so the, you know, one theory would be that the Russians blew the dam in order to prevent um, you know, heavy artillery movement mm. by the Ukrainians, which would seek to try and cross the Dnipro River to make a breakthrough into um, just to divide the Russian forces. Mm. Well, it's been going on for more than a year, more than a year now, and we've been seeing, you know, some uh, mediation efforts from China, and hopefully, you know, that will, yeah, yeah that will bring, you know, uh, some good news in the near future. But uh, thank you, Professor. That was uh, Professor David Martin Jones. He is a visiting professor at War Studies Department, King's College, London. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back after a short break. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China has strongly criticized Japan's plan to release nuclear contaminated water into the sea, calling it extremely irresponsible. Director Zhang Kezian of China's Atomic Energy Authority said the disposal of contaminated water affects the global marine environment and public health. 
Tokyo Electric Power Company started sending seawater into an underwater tunnel on Monday to be diluted before releasing nuclear wastewater into the ocean. The company said all facilities for the water release system are expected to be completed by the end of this month. Local fishing communities say their businesses and livelihoods will suffer still more damage. Environmental groups, including Friends of the Earth, oppose the release. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Digby James Wren. He is a political analyst as well as a senior special advisor and director of the Mekong Research Center at the International Relations Institute, Royal Academy of Cambodia. Thank you, Digby, for talking to us. It's good to have you back on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me again. Now,、uh, Digby, we've seen position opposition from China, South Korea, etc. Some of Japan's、uh, very close neighbors,、uh, you know, opposing Japan's plan to really release these water into the sea. In reality, tell us、uh, which part of Japan's plan is most concerning for the world, especially for Asia. Well, the entire plan is worrying.、Um, <laughs> releasing, releasing contaminated water into the ocean is never a good idea,、um, uh, particularly uh, here because there, there's such a large volume of water that's going to be released over a very long period of time, something like 50 years.、Um, and、uh, you know, it's not just Asia, of course. This is going to go through the Pacific into the Pacific Islands, all of the Pacific Islands,、um, you know, even possibly to California. Mm. Um, so you know, it's a、uh, very concerning for you know, obviously for fish、uh, production, for sea life of all kinds.、Um, and I suppose the most concerning part is that there's going to be active isotopes released into、mm. that water.、Mm. Indeed. Can you do you have more information on that? I mean, what uh, of uh, these uh, radioactive isotopes are are in the water? Well, a, a,、mm. a very very recent study has just found that、uh, you know there's very high levels of cesium. Um, uh, in the near waters, near、mm. the plant,、um, you know, and in the in the fishing areas around there,、um, but the, the the real worry is the tritium, which cannot be filtered in the process, the filtering process that they're going to use. Tritium cannot be filtered out of this water,、mm. uh, and、uh, tritium has a, a half life, a quite a long half life, and、uh, it, you know it could really be in the water for. A very very long time, and it, it it enters the food chain, and of course that's going to cause all sorts of problems,、um, and and they have a very very bad effect on human health if they're ingested, and of course、um, they're going to be ingested because it'll enter into the food chain into all sorts of sea creatures, all you know from small to large,、um, and、uh, and then that's going to be that's in fishing areas, so、mm. you know it's going to have a detrimental effect not just on the fish stocks. And then the fishermen that you know live get their livelihoods from that,、mm. um, but it's also going to、mm. cause mutations in fish. It's all it's, you know all sorts of things like that, and then it, it poses dangers to human to human life. And、uh, you know there's no way for them to understand、uh, in real terms what the currents are going to do and where this water is going to end up、Indeed. and just how severe it's going to be. Mm. I think the most、uh, one of the most risky thing is that nobody really knows what's going on. What what will go. Go on in in terms. Well, that's of, right.、Mm. That's right. No, nobody really knows, and、uh, um, but what we do know for sure is that、mm. when when these isotopes are ingested, that that does have long term effects,、um, and、uh, and you know can cause all sorts of you know diarrhea and bleeding, internal bleeding.、Um, it、mm. can affect sperm cells in in in、uh, in males, and it can affect breeding in females, and I mean humans, not just fish.、Mm. <laughs> so. You know,、right. I mean, yes, it's it's、um, it it、Very. could be quite dangerous.、Mm. Well, one thing is that Japanese government、uh, once said a while ago that discharging into the sea is one of the a few ways to take care of these water.、Um, other methods include、uh, underground burial burials and hydrogen disposal, etc. So, why did they choose water disposal in the end?、Uh, the short answer is it's the cheapest. Um, you know, so the, the, all the other methods uh, take—they、uh, need more storage. They've got to build more storage, and there's a, you know an enormous amount of water. Well, the first thing to remember about this is that the water that's being contaminated is the groundwater.、Mm. So that every time it every time it rains, <laughs> there's、mm. more groundwater, and then there's more contaminated water. So none of this. Solves that problem.、Mm-hmm. This is only a disposal of the water, 
and that water you know, is not going to just stop. You know, it's the groundwater that's being affected here. So there's actually increasing volumes of water. So once they start this process, I mean, it's, it's not going to end for a very, very long time. Um, and these, the other methods are really just very, very expensive or experimental. So um, this is the cheapest and fastest solution, and so that's what they've gone for. Um, but, I, you know, it's look, there's a lot of study being done, and uh, funding some research would have been a very good idea, and they could uh, quite uh, possibly store a lot of this water for at least another 10 years. Uh, and that may, you know, just to, in, just to get rid of tritium would be a really major step forward, and I think they could do that, but um, they've chosen the easy way out. Mm. Um, you know, the idea of just dump it into the largest ocean on the planet and, 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 and it'll just disappear. It's a, it's a very well, bad uh, choice. Mm. Well, a lot of people, actually some Japanese media even have questioned Tepco's plans because there's a high level of distrust of the company uh, following years of leaks, spills, malfunctioning equipment and safety breaches. So how mm. would you see the company's track record? Well, uh, all of those, you know, small things, leakages and things like that. I mean, these these happen to everybody. That's true. But Indeed. but the, the 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 part of it that's not good is that Tepco covered it up. Uh, instead mm. of just coming clean and saying we had a problem and we're we're fixing it immediately, they covered this up and they didn't just do it once. They did it. They falsified their safety records over a period of time, um, and uh, nothing happened immediately. But then. Over time, uh, I think there's been incidents since at least 1990. So, so 1985, I think, was the very first incident. Right. Um, and then right. 1988, 2002, 2007, you know, and then, of course, uh, um, uh, the Daiichi plant uh, disaster. So, yeah, they have a very poor track record. Um, and and worse, worse still is that they've covered it up, tried to hide that and, you know, obscure that. Uh, so, you mm. know, whether whether they can be trusted to do this properly is very also very worrying. Mm. Well, as you mentioned, you know, obviously our world's ocean is interconnected and these uh, this water could, you know, even go to California. Yet uh, G7 countries uh, reportedly remained silent uh, some or somewhat silent over the issue. Why do you think that is the case? Well, that's a geopolitical um, question. Mm. You know, they, they have larger fish to fry, if you like. Um, well. Yes, I mean, purely it's a, a ge geopolitical balance. They need Japan. It's the only Asian member of the G7. Um, it's, uh, you know, a, a major instigator of the Quad um, mm. or the Quad Minilateral. Mm. And um, it's very, very important to the G7 for their geopolitical aspirations in Asia. Um, and, you know, NATO is going to office, open an office in Tokyo. So uh, that outweighs any kind of, uh, you know, environmental uh, health concerns as far as they're concerned. Uh, and they've, they've made that decision and um, for geopolitical reasons. And, yeah, they're willing to risk millions of people's lives to do that. Mm. Well, it is very sad if you you know come to think about it and certainly this is this is gonna set a very bad precedent um in terms of you know how we really treat international waters uh in the future but um i mean this is where we are right now um thank you digby for talking to us that was uh, Dr. Digby James Wren, he is a political analyst as well as a senior special advisor and director of the Mekong Research Center at the International Relations Institute, Royal Academy of Cambodia. Well, you're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up-to-date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Tech giant Apple is going all in on the world of mixed reality. The Silicon Valley tech giant made the eagerly anticipated announcement at its annual developers conference. Mark New reports. At Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, CEO Tim Cook pulled out the famous line from the late Apple founder Steve Jobs. 
But we do have one more thing. He announced Apple's launch into the world of augmented reality. Today, I'm excited to announce an entirely new AR platform with a revolutionary new product. And here it is. It's called Apple Vision Pro, part of a category the company calls spatial computing. The headset is a mixed reality device where images are overlaid while the user maintains vision in the real world. We set the ambitious goal to design an incredibly intuitive input model for spatial computing, one that could be used without controllers or additional hardware. Apple Vision Pro relies solely on your eyes, hands, and voice. Icons respond to where one's eyes look. Gestures allow users to select and scroll. Competitors have launched spectacles and headsets in the virtual reality and augmented reality space well before Apple, such as Google Glass, MetaQuest, as well as products from hundreds of companies. But when Apple moves into a space, it does so with full force, often devouring the competition. One of those competitors is Chinese company Xreal, which first launched its AR glasses in 2020. Co-founder Peng Jin says he actually welcomes Apple's entry into the extended reality space. Hundreds of millions of people starting to pay attention to what's happening in the AR space. So, you know, from that perspective, I think it's super helpful. It's kind of a, a huge proof point that, you know, the, the biggest tech company in the world, the most successful is also jumping into the XR space. I think that's a signal for a lot of people and a lot of the skeptics in the media that were starting to say, you know, the metaverse is dead. Known for superlatives at their events, Apple called the product the most advanced personal electronics device ever, noting that it filed more than 5,000 patents to create the device. That's being used to justify its premium price of $3,500. At the event, Apple also introduced a new 15-inch Mac Air laptop, as well as its latest Mac operating system called Sonoma. Well, for this new gadget, we're joined by Andy Mock. He is tech analyst as well as a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you, Andy. It's good to have you back on the show. Andy. Absolutely great to be with you today. <laughs> now, Andy, first up, uh, I'm actually living my life fine. So tell us, how will this new gadget, uh, Apple Vision Pro, make my life better? Well, that's a good question. Mm. Um, I think immediately uh, there doesn't seem to be this quote-unquote killer app yet, mm. uh, despite uh, this product category being around for a few years, uh, as we all know. Um, but on the other hand, um, as we heard uh, earlier in the piece, uh, Apple entering a product category uh, has enormous ramifications. I think uh, I agree that it validates the space. Um, certainly, Apple is not only uh, known for its design, but I think also known for its business acumen as mm. well. And successful businesses based on sound research. So I think we have to see. Mm. But then, um, on on you know the techni technicalities, um, Andy, what do I do with it? I mean, can I use it as a phone? Uh, because it said you know you can actually enhance your both your work and entertainment, right? Well, absolutely. Mm. So yeah, this is called an, a mixed reality device. So mm. it combines virtual reality, which is a headset that you put on and allows you to journey to the metaverse. Mm. Uh, but it also is augmented reality, meaning that it supplements your interaction with the real world. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see what's going on around you, but you have an overlay as well. So that means there's really an unlimited amount of things you can do in your personal life and in your professional life. So, uh, you know, one of the use cases I find very interesting is if you meet a lot of new people, it can be very hard uh, well, one, you know, how do you know who they are? So, mm. of course, in the analog world, we exchange business cards. Uh, today, we might exchange WeChat. Um, yeah. But still, wouldn't a better experience be that you can see their name and whatever other information they choose to share hovering right by their head as you <laughs> talk to them? So that's one uh, use case. Um, certainly, there's many, many others. Um, mm. You know, I think what Apple's talking about is... Uh, meeting or, you know, online meetings that we can already do through things like Tencent meetings, Zoom, etc. 
Uh, but there it looks a little bit perhaps more three-dimensional. But again, you know, there's there's an almost an unlimited number of applications that can wow. be uh, done with this kind of product. Mm. Well, that does sound a little bit, I mean, revolutionary, let's put it that way. Uh, so the price is $3,499. Um, it's, it's pricey, let's just be frank, compared with the uh, you know, mixed reality gadgets from other developers such as Meta. So how would you comment on the pricing strategy of Apple? Well, mm-hmm. I think this is a very normal pricing strategy for high-end technology products. It's premium price, so we could even call it luxury price initially. Mm. And this follows the tech adoption curve. So whenever there's something new, uh, there's a small percentage of the population called the early adopters or the innovators, <laughs> and they're usually you know, less than 10% of the total market. Mm. And they're willing to pay for new things. So I think it's a very, again, sensible strategy uh, to price high at the beginning, but of course is uh, more people adopt it as the killer apps emerge where we realize I have to have it to do X. Mm. Uh, more and more people will want to buy. Mm. And then there also, there's also downward pricing uh, opportunities as you manufacture more. This is a hardware mm. uh, product, so there ought to be economies of scale. So if you're, ma- if you're making tens of millions or hundreds of millions of them, you ought to be able to produce them at a lower per unit price, which can allow lower pricing in the future. Mm. Well, you've heard our, from our correspondence earlier, uh, you know, where Tim Cook actually played the sound of, uh, you know, Steve Jobs of saying, you know, we do have one more thing, uh, which is, you know, a signal that this is going to be huge for them. Uh, so Tim Cook also said vision is like Mac to PCs and iPhone to mobile, meaning it marks the beginning of uh, spatial. So can you explain to us what that word means and how significant vision is to Apple? Sure. Well, mm. I think conceptually, I completely agree. Um, So when we look at the transition, when we can think about from analog to digital, when Mm. people could have a a computer on their desktop, as as Bill Gates famously said, uh, that changed the world, and it allowed new businesses, uh, new business models to emerge. Similarly, with a mobile phone, a smartphone, uh, that also changed the world. And many people that followed the tech space agree that the next uh, form factor, so, mm. you know, versus a rectangular block that you put in your pocket or your purse, uh, the next uh, electronic device should be something that provides an augmented reality experience, which you probably wear as eyeglasses or, you know, a headset on your head that lets you see the, the real world. Uh, so, so this doesn't, to me at least, it makes sense, but this is the next evolution or the next breakthrough, uh, spatial computing, so you can interact with the world in 3D, not on a two-dimensional screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, you know, it's still early days, and we have to see, you know, what actually will be the killer app that will make everyone want to have one of these. Mm, But... uh... Uh, I think this is already, you know, very exciting uh, for a lot of, you know, people who are, you know, willing to pay for this kind of uh, um, high-end new gadgets. Thank you, Andy. That was Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. For further discussions, you can find us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. Well, I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.